Hello and welcome. You're listening to the Safety and Health Podcast by SHP. I'm your host, Ian Hart, and I'm the editor of SHP. In this episode, we're going to hear from Suki Hodgwood, who looks at safety in design and safety's role in ensuring buildings are not only safe to construct, but also usable for those who will be living, working, and recreationally using the space. Then, Paul Richardson discusses how digitalized safety processes can transform a workplace. Suki Hodgwood is HSE Director at Jacobs, which delivers global solutions to create a more connected and sustainable world, from intelligence to infrastructure, cybersecurity to space exploration. In this interview, which was recorded ahead of Suki's seminar session at Safety and Health Expo in May, we speak about how to reinvigorate the approach to safety and design. I started off by asking Suki about her career background and some of the recent organisational changes that have seen her shift in her role at Jacobs. The organisational changes we've just been announcing is that I'm taking over the role of Head of Safety for Europe. So that's my job at Jacobs now. I started my career 20 years ago at AWE as a safety graduate and I've built on from there. I've worked in nuclear and construction and nuclear new build and everything kind of in between. But that's kind of my bag, 20 odd years of safety experience. And the last three years have been at Jacobs. I'm a fellow of the Institute of Occupational Safety and Health and only got that recently this year. So the new role is going to be incredibly exciting. But what we're really proud of at Jacobs is what I would be talking about at the expo is, is safety and design. So part of why I was brought back into Jacobs was to really reinvigorate our approach to safety and design, not just in the UK where we've got legislation, but to take that approach globally. You know, we're a design and engineering organisation. And so It's our bread and butter. We do have folks on site and we do act as constructors, but this piece we've really got to quite focus on. So I've spent the last three years really implementing, communicating out a whole new ethos when it comes to safety and design. So that includes your usuals, your arrangements, your governance, your training and stuff. But really, it's been a marketing and a brand campaign. And the reason for that is, is that safety and design doesn't really get people excited. Say the way that, that if you talk about mental health or if you talk about inclusivity and diversity, people just kind of switch off and they go, well, that's engineering, that's something else. Yep. But what we've tried to do is make people understand that actually it's the design phase the planning phase, which is where you'll get the whole reason for you being in safety, which, you know, it happens there. And so it has to be brought into the spotlight. It has to be made better. We have to kind of win the hearts and minds. So, you know, we've got the usual arrangements that you could probably see replicated around industry. You know, we're, we're trying to digitize stuff. We're trying to make sure our compliance piece is right. We're trying to include a lot of really, really good stuff. But what we probably fail to see in industries is capturing of the hearts and minds of designers. I'm not saying that designers don't care, but that we've got incredible, incredible expertise. But that expertise, maybe we don't see the impact of decisions that are made at that stage. We don't see that when you're designing something, yes, it will be this amazing piece that might win an architectural award or it might win engineering construction awards. But somebody has to then go and use it. Somebody then has to go and build it. Someone with a family has to drive their car over that bridge, you know, whatever it might be. And that's the book that we want our designers to start thinking about. So any decision that they're taking is to capture that kind of safety behaviours and and to capture the actual impact that they're going to make, the people that they could affect and how and how they can prevent it from happening. So really, it's the idea is, is the power is in those designers' hands to get everything right on site. And the rest of our safety boards don't necessarily have to do much because it's, you know, it's already been done. 
So that's what our kind of safety and design ethos is built around. We've called it five in designs and we've got five steps that we want folks to capture. The idea is, is we have, like I say, all of our processes and our arrangements that formalize this and make this a technically what we need to do. But the idea is those five steps take you from curiosity, knowing, you know, that curiosity empowers innovation and it empowers collaborative thinking. We want our designers to be curious, think about how we've done things 20 years ago and how we're doing things now and how we want to see things being done in the future and that includes obviously the safety side keeping people safe and well and healthy but then the synergies that go along with that in terms of inclusivity and diversity and sustainability this all kind of comes into I guess the one package after curiosity we then ask folks to select the best option which is then getting into the technical elements and really understanding your stakeholders your clients your neighbours right at the outset of designs that you're taking the right decisions. We then move on to identify, communicate and record residual risk. And all of that is about the meat of what safety and design is, right? It's the risk assessment side, which all of our safety professionals know, like the back of our hand. We then move into record, learn and share your performance, which let's be honest, as an industry, we don't do very well. If a bridge designer in the US learns a lesson, does anybody in the Middle East find out about it or do, you know, so so this is really what we're trying to get is that that learning, that really good learning. So we're developing databases and all sorts to do that. And, and a big part of our campaign has been on social media. So we ran an eight week social media campaign on five in design or safety and design just to get people's imaginations captured last one is nobody goes into safety thinking I want to give someone a really hard time nobody does that the whole point is we want to make it easy and this idea that we can do that during the safe design phase is just absolutely fundamental we don't want to give people more processes and PPE and training we want to make it easy we want to give them technical advancements and innovations and all sorts that, that are really really going to push the boundaries of this laying out contractual landscapes that allow people to talk to one another, that allow a contractor to challenge a client, to challenge a designer, to work together to get a good solution. So that's the very last thing. So those are our five steps. Be you in a region that has legislation like the UK and Ireland, which have, you know, CDM and the construction regs or in Australia, New Zealand, they've got legislation. Or if you're in a region like the US where it's seen as best practice, it's slightly alluded to in their regulations, but not really as a must have on the same throughout the Middle East and Asia, or depending on where you are in Asia, we don't really have this prescribed. So we're trying to get this across the globe because we are, let's be honest, we're a global community now. We'll have our designs will be done in in the Philippines and India, in Poland. And so we need to make sure that that ethos, that thought process, that hearts and minds are captured from our designers globally, wherever you're working, we'll follow that ethos. And I thought it was interesting what you said, um, obviously, so part of your role is for making sure that a project is safe during the construction phase, but also making sure that that structure is actually safe and usable once it's built as well. I think that's quite interesting. So I guess that's where you capture that interest from a wider audience as well. Is a building productive to work in? Is it going to make everybody happy working there? Is it going to make a productive atmosphere? So when we're talking safety and design, we are talking whole life cycles. You could be talking about the design of a car. And how cars are designed generally for an average sized male. Now, you know that men come in all different shapes and sizes. Then you get you add women to the equation and then you're like, well, you know, so why can't we design so that it's a little bit more inclusive? And when you introduce that inclusivity, you then introduce a realm of safety because it is is safer than for everyone to use. So in the book, Black Box Thinking, what Matthew Side does is he talks about a cockpit of a U.S fighter plane with US Air Force and that cockpit was again designed for a generic sized pilot but 
actually pilots came in all shapes and sizes arms were longer legs were longer you know the midsections were different sizes and these planes kept on crashing but when they redesigned the cockpit so that it encompassed all manners of body shapes and sizes actually the incident rate went down they didn't crash so much so you know inclusivity equals safety and so that's what we got to think about but if we're going to design a shopping center that's going to be constructed can people go in there and do their shopping have a nice user experience are we introducing natural light are we introducing easy ways to get in and out but then somebody who has to go in and clean the windows and maintain the electrics can they get to that place easily safely without causing havoc for the shoppers and then you know so all of it it all kind of comes into the same thing we sometimes forget the construction element and sometimes we forget the ops and the maintenance and the user element and they all need to come together because you're designing for everyone right so this is absolutely all encompassing have you seen lorenzo vicente's presentation he talks a lot similar stuff to that and some of the examples are absolutely startling so he he mentioned that the cars and how when they're tested crash test dummies are tested on the weight size of a male he talks about the italian army the weaponry that they carry around Mm. you know these women are expected to carry around the same sort of kit as men and the same guns and actually it struggled to carry them let alone fire them and yeah. also around sort of air conditioning in offices and how yeah. even the test back to you know they, they're based on ridiculously old tests that are based on males in an office environment so you, you use this example you sometimes you look around the office and you see you know i might be sitting in the short sleeve shirt my female colleague might be sitting in the corner with a coat on and it, 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 yeah, it was qu- quite interesting and, and shocking and i guess this is changing quite a lot in the last 5, 10, 15 years. Mm. It's, and this, it's particularly around the inclusivity around this and how you've got to think a lot more when these design processes are, are being implemented. There's a lot more to think about in terms of inclusivity than perhaps there were you know, 10 or 15 years ago. Absolutely. I think there was a McKinsey article written about 10 or 15 years ago, right? And it said that the most inclusive work environments are the safest work environments because people are looking out for one another. They're saying, are you okay? Can I do anything differently for you? Do you know that old adage of your brother's keeper looking over your shoulder and making sure you're okay? Inclusive environments tend to do that. So we absolutely have to start considering the inclusivity piece of this. One of the things we're working on at the moment is a um, is an initiative called Fearless Streets and Places. And the idea is, is that look, at Jacobs, we do a lot of urban design. Now, mm. recently, we've had really horrendous events in the news, like, you know, Sarah Everard, Sabine Nessa, there was a lady in Ireland, Ashling Murphy. right? And, and you know, these, these women were, you know, going about their business, whatever they do in that you know killed you know apps and it's and it would it brought a whole piece of well you know how do we prevent violence against women yet yeah, there's a whole cultural piece and education piece and all of that but actually can we design our cityscapes so that they're a lot safer for anyone to walk in so you don't design in shadows and places that people can hide and you make places feel like you want to be in them because they're bright colors and they feel safer rather than a bit of a dark and dingy I don't want to go through there on my own and it caused a huge huge sort of outpouring of support because there was women coming and saying listen I was always taught this you know as a young female to put my keys in my fingers when I walk home and we all went my goodness yeah me too and nobody actually realized the extent of feeling on this until we brought it out and this was all safety and design and inclusivity so the realms of this are absolutely endless because you realize how much a designer impacts when you think about things like that yeah i've seen a few presentations from a guy who's a city planner and he talks a lot about that and how there's no point in designing this pretty nice kind of i don't know plaza or something like that but if it if it's not functional not usable or people don't feel safe there 
they're not going to use it and it's a complete waste. So it's really interesting. This is really important because we're trying to capture hearts and minds of designers and really look at the influence a design can have on construction safety, individual safety, public safety, usability and, and all of that. So anybody that works in that kind of arena can take something away. And it's about taking safety to a different realm, really. This isn't about hard hats and PPE, and although, you know, this is all incredibly important. This is taking it to a phase and to an area that we've maybe not been as vocal about or passionate about in the past, right? And, and it's, you know, with design, we can really start pushing boundaries of things like health, of well-being that are absolute fundamental issues in society and industries around the globe right now. And that's what I want to get out of it. It's interesting you talk about well-being as well, there, because I think, again, that's something that, you know, probably slightly different audience, but in terms of directors of business is now starting to become a lot more interested yeah. in well-being because staff are becoming a lot more. So you go back 10 or 15 years ago, you'd rock up to your office, you might, you know, work, work your eight-hour shift and then go home. You wouldn't necessarily mm-hmm. care the company that you work for, how they treat their staff, how ethical they are. Actually, people now are a lot more aware of that. And so employers are having to be a lot more aware of that. But I guess in, in your sphere as well, contractors are having to be a lot more aware of that in terms of how are people going to use it? Are they going to feel happy using it? Are they going to feel safe and well in this environment? Again, looking back 10 or 15 years, maybe wasn't on the cards and now it really has to be thought about a lot. No, we weren't thinking of it. You know, so I put up a slide once about the Qatar 2022 World Cup, you know, building the stadiums and people were kind of doing an incredible amount of banging in nails by hand. That's a simple way of saying it. Actually, there's a whole technical explanation. But this problem of one person spending thousands of hours doing a lot of manual, whereas all they could have done is precast it and stick it on and it was job done. And that person's well-being, their stress levels, their ergonomics, you know, this all, all had a massive impact. And then somebody said, hey, I had the same problem at the London Olympics in 2012. So 10 years later, why are we still doing the same thing? Why aren't we making a difference? So this is people's well-being. It's not hard to know what makes people healthy and well. We know it because we do it for ourselves, right? We'll open the window and let in fresh air. We'll make sure we've got natural light. We'll make sure we're eating properly. We'll block out times in our diary to prevent burnout. You don't have to be a doctor to do that. So our designers could probably think of construction sequences to prevent fatigue. They could look at introducing natural light into offices and and spaces that have a bit more green areas. So you feel a bit better when you go into them and, you know, and all of that kind of stuff. So these aren't things that are difficult to do. We're just not realising our capability to do them and, and how far we could go if we just did it. Even how people use buildings now, I mean, you use the example of, of stadia there. And, you know, I, I think back to some of the old fashioned football stadium in this country they're brick boxes and yeah. whereas you look at yeah. somewhere like Wembley now and the outside of Wembley is all glass and the light comes in because people use it they'll go in there and spend a day yeah. there you know you know they'll go and have a meal beforehand and actually you're not just going for the 90 minutes when the sport's on you're going to actually spend the time in that arena it's a lifestyle it's just yeah a dark dingy black with people smoking everywhere <laughs> oh, no. well which we remember Bradford City I yeah, remember absolutely. watching that on television with yeah. my granddad and just going what is going on is this yeah. fire you know the guy running out into the picture and it absolutely really impacted me but from then we've taken out the wooden benches and and you know the, the rubbish piece the same with King's Cross but what else have we done in terms of making them great places to be because that's the next step isn't it I thought it was really interesting to hear Suki speak about the level of detail that goes into thinking how a building or space is going to be used COVID-19 has changed the way we work and so now, perhaps more than ever, we need to think about how and why spaces are going to be used. Links to some of the articles mentioned in this interview can be found in the episode description where you can also find a full write-up of this chat. Safety and Health Expo returned in May for the first time in three years and was a real success. 
Whilst there, we caught the thoughts of exhibitors and attendees. Listen now to some of those thoughts. We choose this show because it's the biggest and most well-known health and safety show in the world as far as we're concerned. It's great to actually see people again face-to-face, -face, create that bond, create that rapport. Meeting people face-to-face -face is always the better way of doing business. Showcasing new products at an exhibition is far more effective than doing it via social media or email. We're really excited to launch our latest wearable technology and reach a, a wide audience you know, that potentially would be interested in buying our solutions. What I like best about the show is the exposure, being able to meet different types of clients, customers and other businesses within the industry. Training, events, products and publications, a great way for us to get our word out there. We're meeting outstanding people here at this venue. It's been absolutely amazing. Definitely exceeded our expectations. We get the best insight and from the industry here and always come away having had some great conversations, met some fantastic people and, and got some great ideas for the future as well. So we find that the quality of people is incredibly high. We've done this event for over 10 years now and it just gets better and better. We always get good return on investment. We've been coming here for years and we wouldn't be doing that if, if that wasn't the case. It's always popular, it's always well attended. We're very excited to be here again next year. The word I would use to describe this show is exciting. Exceptional. Professional. Vibrant. Results. Informative. Positivity. Connections. Unmissable. Focus Now is already shifting to Safety and Health Expo 2023 which will be back at London's Excel from the 16th to the 18th of May 2023. To receive further information, click on the link in the episode description where you can register your interest and be the first to know when registration opens. There, you will also find information about exhibiting. Call for speakers will open later in 2022. Paul Richardson is founder and managing director of Connecting Safety Net. In this part of the episode, Paul talks about the digitalization of safety processes and how they can truly deliver results and make the world a safer place. I started off by asking Paul to tell me about his background in safety. I've been basically in logistics and supply chain for 34 years, working for companies like Tibbet and Britain, XL and DHL. I've been on the main board for about 11 years. I've held various operational roles as managing director, having up to 12,000 people working for me at any one time, which has obviously made me very exposed to the impacts that safety can have on a workforce. The last three years of my career, I was the chief innovation officer. So I have a huge passion for innovation and disruptive technology. And where does that passion come from? What is it that's, that's kind of given you that passion for technology and particularly technology in the safety sector? If I go back and just talk a little bit about what I suppose inspires me about our focus on safety, being an operations director of many people, you really can see the impact that, you know, safety processes can have, not just on the well-being of your staff, but also the profitability of your business. So that in itself gave me a passion for safety in the workplace. My frustration has always been getting people to take ownership at all levels. Technology plays an incredible role in how it can help us be more effective in operations, but ultimately it's about people. And the impact of dealing with operational peak surges, you know, often in large operations with high density of people, Many of well, the, the sort of, I suppose, the main areas of injuries when you've got, you know, those peak surges and lots of things coming together 
at one point. So again, really getting people to recognise that process and understanding of what goes on around them is critical to making a workplace safe. And the need to change safety culture, and as I alluded to in the beginning, all levels of an organisation have to you know, take ownership for safety and really build a culture of safety first, make it the first thing you talk about, make it the first thing that you know, your team meetings want to be focused on. And understanding the impact that has on you know, staff wellbeing and, as I say, the cost impact that it has on your organisation. You know, recognising the power of digitalisation. I mean, digitalisation has been actively out there doing a great job. It's accelerating very, very fast now. And it will absolutely make a difference in the way in which, you know, your operations can become more automated in the process of safety. So let's talk a little bit about Connected Safety Net as a brand. And where did the idea come from? What inspired you to develop it? And what does it do? How does it help businesses? If you look at my team, we've all got very strong operational backgrounds. We believe that if you can develop technology that really eliminates the need for paper processes and unnecessary processes, then people can focus much more time in the way in which they can do their jobs more effective. We set ourselves a challenge to say, you know, if you look at a end-to-end process for a lost time injury, that's 360 bits of paper. And if you can imagine the amount of effort and time that's wasted in managing that paper trial, then how much more effective could you be if you could direct that time and resource into preventative measures? So digitising the process and automating the process was our challenge, and I'm confident we've achieved that. We've done some independent work study analysis of our live clients, and we are seeing up to 60% administration savings, both on management side and, and admin And that time is now being reinvested back into those operations to help this whole process of create a zero accident environment. And I absolutely absolutely think that's achievable. You know, there are organisations out there like National Highways, for example, that by 2030, they want zero incidents. You know, technology is probably one of those things that could really make that happen. So the critical thing is, is how do you measure and effectively use technology as I say, do that prevention. How do you get at prevention that will make you effective? And that's what we've set ourselves a challenging connected safety net. We've automated the whole process end to end. We've eliminated the need for any paper at all. So from an environmental and sustainability point of view, we've got an absolute focus on having a positive effect in the way you run your company. And just building on that, on the digitalization front, what kind of results have you seen? How has the digitalization of the safety process helped you deliver results? I guess traditionally, the length of time it takes to report an incident and the paper trail, it can often lead to people maybe not reporting an EMS or not reporting an incident. Whereas the digital process, making that process as easy as possible and the voice activation, not having to ride it all out. You must have seen an increase in clients saying to you, like, yeah, we've seen an increase in, in reportable incidents because it's, of the process being substantially easier. Absolutely right. You give someone a bit of paper and you say to them, every time you see something that's wrong, give us a report of an EMS or demonstrate you're doing a safety conversation or demonstrate as a team you're you're, you're completing safety observations. Nobody likes filling bits of paper and people are quite intimidated today, particularly at levels where maybe people don't have 
the education to be able to sit and put the right words together or spelling, etc. So it, it prevents people from doing the right thing. So where we've developed our speech to text into our products, that's made a massive difference. And you're absolutely right. What we're seeing is an increase in the amount of near miss reporting, which means that their whole theme around prevention is really possible because people are now actively telling us what's not right in the operation uh, and we can do something about it. So, yeah, I, I absolutely believe that technology has made it incredibly easy now to be able to do that near miss reporting that's making a difference. Talking about the sustainability angle as well, I think one of the things that we found is People are a lot more aware of how their company operates sustainably, ethically, morally now than maybe they were 15, 20 years ago. Have you found that amongst your clients and actually the fact that, that you're, they were able to say to their staff, look, we, know, we are now a sustainable organisation. We've cut all this paper trail out and that's actually a sellable asset to go. You know, this is a real you know, tool worth using and digitalisation is actually something that we really need to go on top of. I think incredibly so for these type of operations, because this is so visible and when you look at the reams of paper that are required not just to do safety claims but doing audit processes so we digitize the whole audit process and risk assessments and you go into a typical office of where the safety compliance manager may operate and there would be folders and folders and ring binders and files everywhere full of paper which is just not it's just not the way you should be running a business today and to say that you can now absolutely get rid of all of that that is visible for workers and i think workers like to see it they they like to think that they're part of an organization that's that's you know positively doing something right for the environment it makes a real difference to your office space as well no one wants to look at a you know a bookshelf full of cabinets when you can replace that with you know, some plants and make it a lot more of a visually appealing space to work as well, rather than looking at, as you say, reams and reams of paper. Just on, yeah. the, on the flip side of that, then, and I, I know there's a little bit of a fear factor around technology and people are, are worried that their, you know, their jobs is going to be taken over by automation. Have you had any experiences of that in terms of people pushing back? And, and what would you kind of say to those companies that think, actually, you know, our staff wouldn't get on board with this, that they, they, they don't like the technology, they like the traditional methods? I would be wrong to say to you we haven't that we haven't experienced that we have experienced that some people don't like change um and uh, quite often people at that level uh, their whole job is dealing with paperwork and you take that paperwork away they they feel threatened uh, and what you've got to do is try and give them the confidence and comfort that there is still a job there for them but it's a different job it's about working on prevention programs it's about using data that can effectively transform the way they work. That's a difficult process for someone that's done the same job, let's say for 10 or 15 years, and then we come along and say, it's now gonna change. So that's something you have to be very sensitive to, and you have to be very mindful about your changing people's jobs. Lots of people also don't feel as competent with technology as say others. Uh, and again, part of what makes our product very different in the marketplace it's very intuitive it's very easy you don't have to be no expert to use it and the way in which our product configures to any environment we you know we're able to change the language the questions the drop downs everything you do to that company's way of working so it's very familiar for them when they start using the technology you know, we had one just a few weeks ago and the, the guy said, oh, my God, these are my questions. This is what I've always done. And we said, that's the point. Point of the technology is, is that the technology is not guiding you what to do. 
it's you that guides the technology. You know, we're here to help and we're here to make you more efficient and get you to be focused on more meaningful things that can make a difference. We're obviously still in in a in a sort of transitional stage then by the sounds of it with with, with still people that you know that that, that aren't that are reluctant to get on board. Looking forward to the future. What what do you think the future looks like? How do you visualize looking forward? And, and you know, how adaptable do you think products like yours will have to be to 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 really tailor themselves to a, a, an individual organization's needs? I think we've cracked the process. I think our operational knowledge and experience has done that. We've cracked the challenge of how do you create a product that's digitalized that anyone can use. I think we've achieved that, which is brilliant, but it's not enough. Our focus now going forward is how do we start automating processes? So speech to text, for example, that's by far one of the most favored technologies that we've got. People love that process. We're now going to start developing our machine learning and AI so that we can become more guiding and predictive for users. That I think is really exciting. We're doing work now with IoT and vision software. So, for example, in the highway space, we take in camera activations where people aren't wearing high vis or hard hats or safety boots and take all sorts of data from sensors. That means that, you know, we can combine that with other near miss data and start predicting and preventing automatically. So you don't need to have, you know, huge teams of people working this out. That you know, if you suddenly have flashing up a heat map that a particular part of an operation are not wearing their safety equipment, you can go and do something about it. So I think that data visualization will bring a lot of automation and self-guiding. So you know, we self-guiding instructions to say, you know, we've looked at all the data, it's telling us weather conditions are changing next week. These are the sorts of risks that are going to be happening on Tuesday and these are the actions you need to take. I think that is incredibly exciting in the way in which you will be able to get operations to be much more uh, effective in what they do. I think the claims process will reduce significantly. That's a huge burden on many businesses. I mean, globally, the claims market is worth 3.6 trillion. It's a big issue for all businesses. But if you can start eliminating these injuries, and you can start being smart in the way you process claims through machine learning and AI and, you know, working out which claims need to be settled, which claims should be defended without that money all being spent on lawyers. You know, the technology can do much of it for you. But the most exciting area for me, I think, is the emergence of blockchain and how blockchain, I think, will change much of what will happen in these sorts of processes in encrypting and creating smart contracts. It means that, you know, you can eliminate the fraud and misappropriation that goes on. But uh, yeah, I think that's quite exciting. And what's to say that some form of claims crypto could actually make the whole process of that 3.6 trillion hugely more efficient? Probably a long way off, but I do think blockchain technology has got an interesting part to play in the future. And I think the final one, which again is a bit far out there, but you know, the development of the metaverse and actually using the metaverse to simulate environments for people to understand how to deal with high pressure risk events. You know, you imagine that you you train people for all sorts of things that could happen, but actually they never experience it until it does happen. Imagine if you could put someone in the metaverse and create a high risk environment, maybe if someone 
you know, being injured at a severe level to figure out how they would respond in that type of environment. So I think there's lots of exciting technologies that I think all have a part to play. And it's up to companies like Connected Safety Net, I think, to make sure businesses can get a real understanding of how those sorts of uh, innovations will take us all to another level in terms of what we can do. Some really interesting thoughts there from Paul, particularly on his views on what's to come in the future. Hopefully it will send you away with some food for thought on improvements and changes you can make within your business. I'd like to thank Suki Hodgwood and Paul Richardson for their time in putting this episode together and to you too for tuning in and listening. If you're new to the Safety and Health podcast, please do go back and check out our previous episodes. Last time out, we brought you the full unedited version of Louis Theroux's keynote session at Safety and Health Expo. In the interview, the TV presenter and journalist discuss things from the art of communication, risk assessments, handling danger and hostile situations, and mental health and wellbeing. You can find the link to the podcast hub where all of the episodes are hosted in the description. If you like what you hear, please go and follow the podcast on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts from. We are also available on your smart speaker. Simply ask to play the Safety and Health podcast. We'd be really grateful if you could rate us and comment on your chosen platform, as that will help us to get the shows out to a wider audience. Please do stay tuned to shponline.co.uk for the very latest health and safety news, where you can also sign up to the daily e-newsletter. Thank you very much for listening and see you on the next episode.